Well, good morning. My name is Brian, and this is the second to last installment in our series, Jesus, Beautiful and Believable. Next week, uh, Brian Crawford will be here to give, her, give us the last message in this series. And then on September 17th, we're going to have RUF Sunday. And Ro Taylor from Delta State is going to come and bring the word for RUF Sunday. And then on September 24th, our senior pastor, Albert McGowan, will return from sabbatical. And y'all, I can't wait. Um, I'm so glad that he's coming back. So today, we're going to be focusing our attention on John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, and we're going to, get, going to consider the water of life. And as you find your place in your Bibles or on your device, I'd encourage you to keep it open this morning. We'll be coming back to it again and again. We moved this last month. We moved from Clinton to Jackson. And Clinton, I lived in Clinton for 28 years, and it served us very, very well. But y'all, moving to Jackson has felt like coming home. Everything is so close. We see our people here. You guys are here. We're bumping into you at Kroger and at Whole Foods. And I no longer have a 50-minute commute every day from Clinton to Jackson. But when you move, it's a huge paradigm shift, right? And so this has been for us a period of reflection. We've been thinking back on what has life looked like and looking forward to what will life look like. And we've been thinking about our habits and our patterns and our routines, right? And our general feeling as we've been processing all of this is a feeling of overwhelming gratitude. Did, did y'all know that gratitude has medical benefits? There are scientists in the field of positive psychology have found that practicing gratitude can lead to better overall health, better eating, better sleeping, lower risk of heart disease. It can reduce cellular inflammation. It works at a cellular level. It can help reduce fatigue, lower stress, decrease the likelihood of burnout, mitigate depression. Practicing gratitude can increase your happiness and your satisfaction, improve relationships, and build resiliency. And practicing gratitude takes very little time and has these incredible results. Scientists will say that the best way to practice gratitude is once a week to write down the things that you're thankful for in a gratitude journal. Did you know that in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to practice gratitude. He commanded them to practice gratitude in lots of ways, but one of those ways was festivals and feasts, pilgrimages back to Jerusalem to remember and rehearse all that God has done and all that they were thankful for. And that's the setting of John chapter 7 this morning. It's the Feast of Booths. And so we're going to look at our passage this morning under three headings. First of all, we're going to consider the setting. Then we're going to consider the source. And finally, we'll consider the surprise. The setting, the source, and the surprise. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. Jesus 
offers the water of life to finally satisfy our souls. Jesus offers the water of life to finally satisfy our souls. Let's focus our attention then on John chapter 7, starting at verse 37. This is the word of the Lord. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as the Spirit had not yet been for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning to think about the water of life that satisfies our souls, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would remind us by the power of the gospel through the work of your Holy Spirit and the mediation of your Son of the good news of the gospel. And I pray this morning that you would convince the one who teaches of his sins, that you would forgive, <laughs> I'm already convinced, <laughs> that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So first of all, this morning, let's consider together the setting. The setting. In John chapter 7, verse 2, where this passage begins, uh, the setting is given. John writes, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And the Gospel of John pays particular attention to Jesus at Jewish festivals. In John chapter 2, we see Jesus at the Passover. In John chapter 5, he's at an unnamed feast. He's back at Passover again in John chapter 6. And now he's at the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles in John chapter 7. Because John wants you to see Jesus as someone who is deeply committed to a life of worship. Now the Feast of Booths, and by the way, this isn't booze like we're really disappointed or booze like we're really happy, um, right? This is the Feast of Booths, B-O-O-T-H, because as they celebrated the Feast of Booths, they would live for a week in tents, because this was to commemorate Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years in tents. You could say it was an intense experience. Um, now, this, this festival is also called Sukkot, um, which uh, you can, anyway, we should all celebrate Sukkot. Um, and there's one, this is one of the three pilgrimages to Jerusalem that would happen each year. Uh, in the spring, there was the Passover. In the summer, there was Pentecost, and Pentecost was a celebration of God giving, the, giving Moses the Torah on Sinai. And then in the fall, you had the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was held in the early fall, so the Feast of Booths this year is being celebrated from Friday, September 29th to Friday, October 6th. 
It would be kind of like if you showed up for the block party on September 27th and just decided, you know what, this was so much fun. We're just back here on Wellington Road. We're going to set up a tent and we're going to sleep in the tent for the week all the way until the marriage conference on October 6th. We're just going to dwell in tents. We're going to hang out back here for a week and celebrate, right? That's what was going on here in the Feast of Booze. And it was a celebration of God's gracious provision for the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And so in order to appreciate the festival of booze, we need to understand what they were celebrating. And so you need to go back to the book of Exodus. And in Exodus, God raises up Moses as a deliverer in order to deliver his people out of slavery in, in Egypt. They had been enslaved for 400 years. And God gives Moses these 10 plagues to, as signs for God's people to deliver them out of the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. And if you pick up in Exodus chapter 12, we have the Passover, right? The meal of the Passover is instituted. And then you have the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, where as, as God's people smear the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, the angel of death passes over. And as a result of that 10th plague, Israel is set free. And so they go into the wilderness, and in Exodus chapter 13, God appears as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to lead Israel in the wilderness. Well, in Exodus chapter 14, Pharaoh gets really upset that he's lost these Hebrew slaves, and so he pursues them with an army, and God leads his people through the Red Sea. He parts the Red Sea, and God's people walk through on dry land, and then he covers over as the Egyptians are falling, and the Egyptians are wiped out. And now Israel is truly free. And in Exodus chapter 15, Moses sings this song of rejoicing. After 400 years of slavery, Israel has finally been set free. And then you get to Exodus chapter 16, and reality hits. And in Exodus chapter 16, you're thinking, huh, we need to eat. We're kind of hungry at this point. They're a, little, they're a little anxious about where their next meal is coming from. And so God provides manna from heaven. Literally, manna means what is it? And it was this white bread that fell from heaven each day. It was their daily bread. God provided for his people food to eat in the wilderness. And by the way, Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 35, after he's fed the 5,000 at the Passover, he's discussing this bread from heaven. And he says to the people, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats from me, whoever comes to me, will never be hungry again. But then in, in Exodus chapter 17, they, they, okay, they, we've been fed, right? We, we, we've got this daily bread coming, but you know what else we need? We need water, right? We need water. Where are we going to get water? And God says in Exodus 17, he says, I will stand at the rock at Horeb, 
and you can strike the rock, Moses, and water will flow. And he did so, and God provided water from the rock for Israel to drink. You see, the same God who provides daily bread also provides water from the rock. The same God who provides for your hunger will also provide for your thirst. And you see, the Feast of Booths was a celebration that in 40 years of wilderness wanderings, the bread from heaven, the manna, never ran out. That in 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the water from the rock never ran out. They had bread and they had water. And at the Feast of Booze, there were two ceremonies. There were two ceremonies. The first ceremony happened in the evening, and it was a lamp lighting ceremony. Now, when I say lamp, you might think about that thing that you have on your nightstand, right? This little lamp. That's not what these lamps were. These lamps were oil lamps, and they were 75 feet tall. Now, I measured the sanctuary this week, and if you look back here at this screen, right, the top, the screen at the top down to the floor is 23 feet, okay? These lamps, these, yes, it's 23, I know, it's kind of odd, but it's 23 feet from the top of the screen to the floor. These lamps, these oil lamps, were 75 feet tall. That means they were three times the height of the sanctuary, and there were four of them in the outer courts of the, uh, of the temple, right? And they lit these oil lamps, and light shone enough to light all of Jerusalem. And that happened every evening, these lamps were lit. And these lamps were to look back. They were to look back at the Shekinah glory, right? God appearing by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But they also looked forward to Isaiah 9 and verse 3, that there would be a great light that would come and bring light to those who are dwelling in darkness. And so Jesus, in John chapter 8, after Israel had just experienced this lamp lighting for seven days, right? Jesus stands up and says what? I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. The other ceremony, ritual, that happened during the Feast of Booze was the water pouring ceremony, the water pouring ceremony. And while the, the lamp lighting ceremony happened in the evening at dusk, the, lamp, the, the water pouring ceremony happened at dawn. And each dawn, the priests would take a golden pitcher from the temple, and they'd walk down the streets of Jerusalem to the Pool of Siloam. And at the Pool of Siloam, they would fill this pitcher, this golden pitcher, with water. And when they did so, there would be three blasts from the trumpet, because Isaiah 12.3 says, with joy we will draw, draw water from the wells of salvation. And then they took that pitcher back, they processed back to the temple and at the altar, and they marched around the altar while the congregation sang together the Egyptian Hallel, the Egyptian praise, Psalms 113 to 118. 
And then they poured the water out at the temple as God's people three times said, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And you see this water looked back. It looked back to God's provision of the water from the rock in the wilderness, how that water never ran out. And it looked forward. It looked forward to the giving of the Holy Spirit. And this was a ceremony with so much joy. They started their day with so much joy. There, there was so much joy that when the temple uh, was destroyed uh, in 70 AD, as the rabbis were reflecting on this water-pouring ceremony, they wrote, "'He who has not seen the rejoicing,' at the place of the water drawing, has never seen rejoicing in his life. If you've not experienced this water-pouring ceremony, you've not experienced real joy. But on the seventh day, as the priest went with the golden pitcher to the pool of Siloam and then proceeded back, on the seventh day, they processed around the altar seven times. And it was the climax. And then they poured the water out. And Jesus stands up and says, If anyone is thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I am the water from the rock. I am the water that will give you the deepest satisfaction that you've ever experienced. I'm the water that you've been looking for all your life. And this brings us to the second point then. Jesus is saying, he's the source. He's the source of the water in the desert. And as he stands up on the seventh day of the feast, he's saying in public what he has already said before in private. Do you remember the conversation in John chapter 4 that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well? The woman who has five husbands, and Jesus asks her for a drink. And she's like, wait, why are you talking to me? Right? Because Jews and Samaritans didn't talk to each other. And by the way, notice here that Jesus was breaking a cultural norm to love those who are different than him. And in John chapter 4, verse 10, I wonder if I can get that first slide, Jesus answers her and says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, I used to think that living water here was moving water, like, like a river, right? But it is literally the water of life. It's literally the water of life. Why? Because in a desert, water makes life possible. Water is a prerequisite for life. Without water, there is no life. And the woman says, well, where are we going to get this living water? water, right? How are you going to get that? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and, and the water itself. And Jesus says to her, next slide, Andre. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never 
be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's saying to the Samaritan woman at the well, I have the water of life. And when you drink this water, he says, it will give you life. And he's not just talking about physical life. He says, you will never be thirsty again. He's saying, this is the only water that can truly and ultimately and finally satisfy you. It will well up in you to eternal life. That is to the good life. And this is the life that you've been longing for all of your life. This is the life that every golden moment and every fond memory has pointed to. That every time you are left speechless by joy or you are awestruck by beauty, those were illusions to this life. They were glimpses of eternal life. And this is the life that Jesus offers as he says, I have the water of life. Thanks, Andre. That was all a conversation in private. And now, in public, at the Feast of Booths, Jesus comes back to the water of life. After the water had been drawn in the Pool of Siloam and poured out there at the altar, Jesus stands up on that last day of the feast. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And by the way, Jesus here sounds a lot like God in the Old Testament. Did you catch the allusion there this morning in Isaiah 55, verse 1? God says to Israel in the Old Testament, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. You see, as Jesus extends this invitation in John chapter 7 to everyone who thirsts to have their thirst finally satisfied by the the water of life, he's using God's words. And now, back in Exodus 17, do you remember where the life-giving water came from for those 40 years in the wilderness? Can I get that next slide, Andre? Exodus 17, 6, Behold, God says to Moses, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. You see, the water of life, that living water that came out of the rock, it came out of the rock that was associated with and connected to the presence of God. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, interprets it this way. He says, remember our fathers and their wanderings in the wilderness and their connection with Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food. Next slide, Andre. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. You see, Jesus is saying, come to me and drink the water of life. He's saying, do you remember how the water from the rock sustained Israel for 40 years in the desert? The water that I offer is better. I have the water that you've been looking for 
all of your life. I have the only water that will satisfy. I have the water that wells up in you to eternal life. Thanks, Andre. Oh, brothers and sisters, we need the water of life. We live in a parched existence. One of the things that we love at our new house is the landscaping. Uh, there, there's no yard uh, to mow. The, the, our plot is relatively small, and so there's no grass. Uh, but there are plants and flowers. And when you move in August and there are two weeks of 100 degree temperatures, you need to get those plants and flowers water, right? And so we move in and Lee, being more practical, goes out and grabs the hose. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to water these plants every chance that I get. Well, I'm trying to figure out the sprinkler system, right? There's this really cool automated sprinkler system. If I can just figure that out, we can get water to the plants. And meanwhile, the plants are just kind of doing this, right? They're wilting. They're, they're dying. Why? Because plants need water to live. And oh, brothers and sisters, how we are like the plants. We need the water of life in order to live. And we live in a parched existence. Now, there are lots of things out there in our culture today that offer water, but it's not the true water. It's not the water of life. It's only a cheap imitation in Laura Hildebrand's book, Unbroken, she tells the story of Louis Zamperini. And at one point in Louis's life during World War II, he's in the Air Force and he's serving in the Pacific Corridor and his plane gets shot down and he has to survive on the Pacific Ocean. And he survives for 47 days until he's finally rescued. And do you know what his greatest need was on that life raft? for 47 days on the Pacific Ocean, it was water. And do you see the irony of this? He's surrounded as far as he can see on the horizon in every direction by water, but it is undrinkable water. He needs fresh water, not salt water. He needs the water of life in order to survive. There are many things that offer water, but only Jesus offers the water of life. We live in a parched existence. There's another author who tells a fable of a sea lion, and this sea lion is stranded in the desert. And of course, a sea lion is built, he's designed for the water, right? He has flippers in this sleek body that's designed to dance and propel himself through the water. But this sea lion happens to be stranded in the desert. And so those flippers that are designed to propel him through the water, he's kind of waddling around now in this dry and dusty ex existence, and the dust and the sand is blowing in his eyes. And he knows that this desert is not the world that he was made for, right? He was made for the water of life. We live 
in a parched existence. And whether you experience that as Lily Zamperini with water all around that's undrinkable, or as a sea lion where you're in a desert, but you know you were built for the water of life, Jesus comes to you this morning and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He's saying, I have the water of life, the water that you've been looking for all your life. I have the water that will only finally satisfy you, that will satisfy your heart. We live in a parched existence. Thirdly, then, we have the surprise, the surprise. And actually, there are two surprises here in our text. The first is we find in verse 39. Now, John writes, he, that is Jesus, said this about the Spirit. And John is telling you that when Jesus is talking about this living water, this water of life, he's referring to the Spirit, that the water is just a symbol. And while this may be a surprise to us, it wouldn't have been to the original audience gathered at the Feast of Booze 2,000 years ago. Because they knew that the water-drawing ceremony looked back to the provision of water in the wilderness, but it also looked forward to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Because they had scriptures, they knew scriptures that connected water and the Holy Spirit, like Isaiah 44.3. Can I get that next slide, Andre? For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. He's pouring water and pouring the spirit. It's the same action. Or in Ezekiel 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey your rules. Sprinkle water, putting my spirit. And by the way, this sprinkling and pouring of water that in the Old Testament is connected uh, to the Holy Spirit is why we Presbyterians are comfortable sprinkling and pouring water in baptism. And sometimes passages just talk about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, like Joel 2, 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And so... When these Old Testament readers came to passages like Isaiah 58, verse 11, where it says this, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy, and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. You will be like, and you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail, they wouldn't have read water literally. They would have read it in connection with the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Andre. And then in Ezekiel 47, there's this beautiful prophecy of water flowing from the temple. 
And as the water flows from the temple, it gets deeper and deeper the further it runs from the temple. And this river running from the temple in Ezekiel 47 brings life. Everything that the water touches comes alive. And so they would have read that prophecy as an allusion to the Spirit. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. And so John clarifies in verse 39, Now Jesus said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And after Jesus was glorified through his life, death, and resurrection, he gave the Spirit first to his disciples in the upper room. In John chapter 20, he breathes on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And then at Pentecost, do you remember what Jesus, what Peter says when he's preaching to the crowd at Pentecost? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus stands up and invites the thirsty to come to him and drink, when he offers the water of life, He's referring to the Holy Spirit. That's the first surprise, that the water of life refers to the Holy Spirit. And the second surprise is a glorious wrinkle. And I don't want you to miss this. Look, look at verse 38 in the text. Whoever believes in me, as the, scriptures has, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, there's a lot of debate here, and many godly scholars who are much brighter than me have tried to read, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water to refer to Christ. It's out of Christ's heart, because Jesus is the source of living water. He's the one who makes the invitation. And while that's theologically accurate, that's not what this text is teaching here, right? Who does out of his heart refer to, to immediately, what, what, what immediately precedes it. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, you see, out of his heart is referring to whoever believes in me. And this is the glorious wrinkle and the second surprise that when you come to Jesus and drink, when you receive the Spirit by faith, the water of life that you receive not only satisfies your heart, but overflows in your life so much so that we could sing that VBS song, right? I've got a river of life flowing out of me, makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. I should never do a solo, um, right? But, but We've got a river of life. Here, here's the surprise that you, as the believer, right, mediate this source of the water of life. Jesus is saying in Ezekiel's vision of water that flows from the temple, 
getting deeper and making everything alive. He's saying it's coming through you. You're the vessel. You're the golden pitcher at the Feast of Booze. In the kingdom of God, Jesus is pouring out his spirit. He's bringing life. And do you know how he's doing it? He's doing it through you. And he's doing it through me. How's that for a plot twist? We get to participate in the outpouring of the Spirit. We get to participate in the outpouring of the kingdom. If you're thirsty this morning, Jesus is saying to you, come to me and drink. If, like Louis Zamperini, you find yourself surrounded by water, by water, but that water doesn't satisfy? Or if, like the sea lion, you find yourself stranded in the desert, but you know that you were made for the water of life, if you're thirsty this morning and you recognize that thirst, then the Father is already at work. You see, Jesus says in John 6:44 that no one can come no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And in John 7, 34, immediately before our passage, Jesus says to the officers that the Pharisees sent to arrest him, he says, where I am, you cannot come. So if you're thirsty this morning, and you recognize that thirst, and the Father is already at work, Jesus is saying to you, come to me and drink. Jesus is saying, I alone offer the water of life. I alone can satisfy your thirst. And he's saying that whether this is the first time you've, you've come or it's the thousandth time you've come. Jesus invites us to come and drink as we gather together in public worship. Jesus invites us to come and drink as we sit under his word and the discipline of personal devotion. Jesus invites us to come and drink as we commune with him in prayer. Jesus invites us to come and to witness the joy of the festival and to shout three times, give thanks to the Lord. Jesus invites us to come and believe. And then, and only then, will we begin to, if ever so briefly, taste and see that the Lord is good. And we will forget, even if just for a moment, that we are thirsty. And we will catch a glimpse of the satisfaction that we will experience fully in the new heavens and the new earth when we will never thirst again. And do you know what it cost Jesus to say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink? Do you know what it cost Jesus to offer the water of life? John is the only gospel that records Jesus on the cross saying, I thirst. The other three gospels record the response, right, where the soldiers take the sponge and they fill it with sour wine and they offer it to Jesus, but only John records Jesus saying, I'm, I thirst. And it's there because John wants to show you that on the cross, 
Jesus says, I thirst, so that you will never have to be thirsty again. That on the cross, Jesus says, I thirst, so that your thirst will finally be satisfied. That on the cross, Jesus says, I thirst, so that you can experience the joy of the water of life. And so Jesus says to you this morning, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus offers the water of life to finally satisfy our thirst. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you draw us now by your Holy Spirit to come to Jesus and drink, because there is a fountain filled with blood. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.